Have you ever thought what it would be like to walk on water? You know, Jesus style. Well-known preacher Andy Stanley was visiting Israel with his wife and another couple. They decided to take a boat trip on the Sea of Galilee. As you can imagine, this is popular with visitors, especially Christians. And they happened to be put on a boat with a church group. Uh, and it was a pastor and about a dozen or so of his flock. And though lovely, these people were a little bit excited and a little bit over-the-top type Christians. I think we've all met them, and they bless us immensely. Now, it's common for the boat to stop at some stage to enjoy the stillness of the lake. And the pastor took the opportunity to lead a devotion. Now, towards the end of the devotion, and much to Andy's surprise, he brought out some bottled water and poured it on the deck. And then he said to his group, let's all walk on water on the Sea of Galilee. And they did. And they were very excited. It was lots of hallelujahs and a joyful kind of, I'm walking on the water like Jesus sort of experience. When they were actually just walking on a puddle on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Andy Stanley and his wife hadn't let on they were Christians. And they certainly weren't going to now. Even when the pastor gave them that sort of look. Don't you want to be able to tell your friends that you've walked on water on the Sea of Galilee? Sort of a yeah, nah type situation. So I suppose technically it is possible to travel to Israel and walk on water on the Sea of Galilee. But but what's with this walking of the water? I mean, it's an image that is very popular, isn't it? I mean, popular culture knows exactly what you mean when you talk about walking on water. In the movie Bruce Almighty, uh, God and Bruce are walking and talking, and as the camera pans out, you see that they're walking on water. In the Broadway show Jesus Christ Superstar, King Herod taunts Jesus to walk across the swimming pool to entertain the party that he was holding. Outside popular culture, there's even a lizard. Do you know what the lizard's nickname is? It's the Jesus lizard. Why is it called the Jesus lizard? Because it has the ability, it's so light and has webbed feet that it can just skip across the water. If you want a bit of entertainment, look it up on YouTube and you'll see these lizards walking or running on water. But what's it all about? I mean, what does it mean? With Jesus' other miracles like healing, casting out demons, feeding 5,000s, the purpose is obvious, isn't it? I mean, why walk on water? Is it just a convenient way for Jesus to get across the lake without a boat? Well, this morning, this is what we're going to explore. We're going to pick up the story straight after Jesus had fed the 5,000. We'll look at actually what happened and then what it means. Then we'll see how it impacts that big question that we've been looking at as we go through Mark. Who is Jesus? I mean, how does this walking on water help us understand who Jesus is? And along the way, we'll pick up some take-homes, some practical tips. So, what's the context? Jesus had withdrawn with his disciples to a quiet place, to the wilderness. It had been so busy back, back in Capernaum that they didn't even have time to eat. And even though they were in an isolated place, the crowd had tracked them down. And his plans for time out had been majorly interrupted. And what did he do with the crowd? Well, he he taught the crowd. He had compassion and he taught them all day. At day's end, they were hungry. They were extremely hungry. But where were they to find food in the wilderness? So Jesus sat them down where they were 
and he gave thanks for five loaves and two fishes, and then miracle of miracles, all 5,000, over 5,000, were fed. And we pick up the action just after the disciples have cleaned up with 12 baskets of leftovers. And so that's Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now notice Jesus made the disciples. He compelled his disciples. There's a sense where there's a little bit of reluctance there for some reason. It's, it's all likelihood that Jesus gave them a bit of a hard word. Stop your fussing. I know it's late, but you've got experienced fishermen with you. Get on and get going. I'm going to dismiss the crowd, and then I'm going to pray. You see, Jesus wants this time with his father. You remember it was interrupted by the crowds, but Jesus felt it's so important for him to have time out with his heavenly father that he dismisses the crowd and his disciples, climbs the mountain and settles in to pray. Let's pause for a moment and recall Jesus' examples of prayer elsewhere, in particular Mark 1, Mark 1, 335, We saw Jesus rise early while it was still dark to seek out a quiet time, a quiet time with God. The night before, the crowds had come to him and he'd spent all night into the wee small hours praying and for people were being healed and demons cast out. Now he's going to a place early in the morning to pray until he's disturbed by very anxious Peter. Peter and the disciples have woken up. No, Jesus, we better find him. And so... Jesus uh, is found by Peter who says, everyone's looking for you. Here we see Jesus working hard to carve out the evening to be with his heavenly Father. So the question for us is this, when do we seek out time to be with our heavenly Father? Does the morning work better for you? For many people it does. Starting the day with Jesus before busyness and distractions crowd in is a good way to start the day. Others prefer evening. As our day draws to a close, we can bring our cares and concerns, our hopes and joys, before turning in for the night. When's the best time for you? Some of us are morning people. Some of us don't think the day starts until after nine o'clock and our second cup of coffee. It doesn't matter. Know yourself. Are you a morning person or an evening person? An owl or a lark? Know yourself and use the best part of your day in prayer for God. So that's our first take-home. Back to the story in verse 47. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. Uh, Just as Peter had interrupted Jesus' morning prayer in Mark 1, so the disciples are about to interrupt Jesus' prayer on the mountain. Verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now this all sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Late night sail, bad weather, in fact a storm is brewing, disciples straining at the oars. And we remember back to Mark 4, with water splashing over the sides, the storm was so great, and the disciples so scared they ended up waking Jesus who was sleeping in the back. And Jesus said, quiet, be still. And the lake became still. Very similar, isn't it? 
But there's a big difference. Do you know what the difference is? There's no Jesus in the boat. He's not there. And again, we pause here for a couple of take-homes. First, and this is really important, just because God sends us, it doesn't mean he will guarantee an easy ride. Now think about that. Just because God calls and sends us doesn't mean he's going to take every obstacle out of our way. Remember, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And here they are in a storm. I can imagine at least one, if not all the disciples, were muttering to themselves, what was Jesus thinking? He made us get into the boat. We're only obeying him. Why is it so hard? And why isn't he here to help? Is it not the same with us? We've prayed about a major decision. It might be taking on a new job. It might be moving towns. It might be a major financial investment in business. Uh, we might finally get the courage to challenge a friend about their destructive behaviour. It may be that we start a new ministry. And we've prayed and we've sought godly advice and the circumstances align and we're excited and the doors open and we have a really clear sense of God's call and then we hit a speed bump and we quickly complain, God, what were you thinking? I thought you wanted me to do this. Why is it so tough? Well, here we see that God never promises those who follow him an easy ride. But this brings us to our second take-home, a positive take-home. Jesus never abandons us in the storm. He didn't back then, and he won't today. We might feel we're straining at the oars alone. We might panic as waves start to come into the boat. We might even feel that a sleeping Jesus nearby is better than no Jesus at all. But no, unfolding here before us, we see that Jesus never abandons those who follow him. And this is why we can cling to the many promises we have in the word of God. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What a wonderful promise. Hmm? We can be strong. We can be courageous. We don't have to be terrified or discouraged. Why? Because God promises to be with us. He doesn't promise to keep the storms out of our lives. He promises to be with us in the storms. And Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Goodness me, we can walk even into the valley of the shadow of death and Christ is with us. So why do we not fear when the storm rages? Why are we not terrified as we strain at the oars? Because Jesus promises he will never abandon those who follow him. Now I've jumped ahead a little bit, so let's see how this pans out for the disciples. Second part of verse 48. About the fourth watch, that's between three and six o'clock in the morning. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And this is all when it gets a bit strange, a bit bizarre. It's amazing, it's unprecedented, but it's on the strange side. But let's just think. Moses parted the Red Sea and God's people were saved. That's amazing. 
very practical too, isn't it? They were on the storm and Jesus calmed the storm. Again, it was amazing and also very practical, saved the disciples' lives. But here Jesus is walking on the water, equally amazing, but why? (laughs) What's the practical benefit? Couldn't Jesus just have stood on the lake side and said, be calm? And, or any, there's any other multitude of ways that Jesus could have sorted this out. And not only that, it gets a little bit stranger as we read on. Jesus was about to pass them by. What's that all about? Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they, they all saw him and were terrified. Well. Wow goes from the strange to the bizarre. Out of all the questions, there's a couple here that we'll look at. Why this walking past the disciples? And why were they more terrified when it was calm than when it was all stormy? And both of these answers have their roots in the Old Testament. Walking on water. What's that all about? Well, let's look at Job 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He alone. Who? God alone stretches out the heaven. God alone walks, treads on the waves of the sea. Isaiah 43, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. The Old Testament is very clear. There is only one person who walks on water, and it's God. In the Bible, you will find no other account of anyone walking on water, except when Peter has a go in the book of Matthew, and he doesn't do too well. But in all of the Bible, it is only God who walks on the water, and Jesus here. And it's very important, isn't it? Hold that thought. What about this walking past? What's what's all this walking past about? Well, many Bible teachers believe that this is a reference back to Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai that Judy read before in Exodus 33. So let's shift gears back a few thousand years before Jesus to Moses. Moses is on the mountain. He's received the Ten Commandments and all of the laws. In fact, he's got two stone tablets in his hands and he's about to go down the mountain to the people of Israel. And just before he goes, he says to God, I want to see your glory. Exodus 33 verse 20. And God replies, you cannot see my face. No one can see me and live. Nobody can see God in all his glory and live. If he was to appear here in all his glory, we would all perish. Personally, I think that would be rather nice because we would be translated straight into heaven. And that has, an, a, lot of, that has a lot of appeal, doesn't it? <laughs> but anyway, we, we, God, when he re- reveals himself, is always veiled. Always veiled. So let's pick this up at the beginning of verse 21, Exodus 33, 21. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by... I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. Notice the glory of God passing by is referenced twice in this passage. When he passes by, we catch him out of the we catch his glory out of the, a glimpse him out the side, or he. We glimpse his glory 
by the rear, by the back of God Almighty. And so this is what's happening here. These two things, the walking on the water and the walking by, are a very powerful revelation to the disciples of who Jesus is. It's this combination of walking on water, which only God can do, and this going to pass by, like God did to Moses on the, in the cleft of the rock, that means that the disciples start to think, well, who is Jesus? I mean, who is Jesus if he can walk on water? Well, only God can walk on water. And who is Jesus? He's walking by. And I'm sure the disciples would have, would have remembered back to that story of Moses and God's glory walking by. No wonder the disciples are terrified. No wonder they're trembling. It's easier to believe that Jesus is a ghost than that he is divine, God himself. And yet we think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus, God's son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And here, in the storm, in the trouble, in the, in the most difficult time of the disciples' life, Jesus reveals his glory by walking on the water. And what happens next? Verse 50. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. And so here we have this divine figure rescuing floundering disciples. Here we have Jesus self-disclosing that he is divine to bewildered and frightened disciples. And it's not on a mountaintop like with Moses and the cleft on the rock. It's not on the mountaintop like Elijah who came out of the cave. It's another sermon, if you remember that story, but God revealed himself to Elijah on that mountain as well. It's not on a mountaintop, but it's in the midst of a storm. Deep waters, sinister and dangerous powers with the disciples struggled. And this is where Jesus chose to reveal himself. And he does the same for you and I. When you go through a storm, there is the opportunity for you to lean into God and for God to reveal his glory and his compassion and his grace in the most difficult times of your life. Don't we serve a wonderful saviour? Is he not beautiful Beyond description, is not Jesus too marvellous for words? Our Saviour who will never abandon those who follow him. So let's just tie this together as we come to the communion table. What have we looked at today? Well, first we saw Jesus carve out time to be with his Father. He'd been interrupted by 5,000 people. A minor interruption, maybe. So he shoes his disciples out into the lake, dismisses the crowd and goes up to pray. And so our challenge for us today is, when is our best time to pray? Are we morning people? Are we evening people? Whatever you are, carve out some time to spend with Jesus. It starts more if you haven't already. Lean in to prayer. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. It's a promise, James 4.8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Dedicate 
the best time of your day to spend time with Jesus. It's the first take home. The second take home is Jesus calls us, each of us, and he makes us get in the boat, and it's good and it's wonderful and it's awesome, but he never promises us plain sailing. In fact, if you're a Christian, it either means you've just sailed out of a storm or you're about to sail into a storm. And oh yes, we pray for smooth sailing and God gives it to us. And we have these large passages of time where things are good, don't we? There's wind in our sails and spray on our face and we're just sailing and God's wonderful. But there's always a storm on the horizon. And our next take home is that even in the storms, especially in the storms, Christ will never abandon you or I. In fact, it's in the storms that Christ comes and reveals not only his compassion, but his glory. And he whispers to us, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. And listen, everyone faces storms, don't they? Everyone. Think of the most religious person you know. Think of the least religious person you know. Well, they face storms, don't they? Think of the wealthiest person you know and the poorest person you know. Well, they face storms. Those with the best health and the worst health, the oldest and the younger, youngest, we all face storms. But as Christ followers, we never face a storm alone. Christ comes to us in our hard places, take courage, it is I Don't be afraid. And this is God's word to you and I as we come to the communion table. We take the bread and the cup. We take his body and his blood. And I pray that each of us will hear these words with fresh ears and a soft heart and know them to be true. God's words to us, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Let's pray.